Hello there, we are your hosts Vivek and Pavitra from the Agile Coach Podcast. In this podcast, we bring fresh perspective to you through our interviews with thought leaders in Agile Coaching, Facilitation, Business Analysis, and Product Management roles. Enjoy! Would love to hear about your background and who you are. Kind of introduce yourself, please. Yeah, absolutely, man. So I, I had a background in athletics pretty much since I was I was pretty young. Um, and I think as I grew in my professional career and started, I, I took a pretty unconventional route to being a scrum master. So somehow majoring in biology in college and starting my career in finance led me to a position in IT project management today, which was a definitely unconventional, but I'm pumped with where I, I ended up. And I think, um, you know, as I started to grow professionally and, and transitioned into this role, I saw a lot of parallels with athletics, which which really gave me a pretty huge passion for leading teams. Because as I, I was a part of high-performing teams in athletics, they have very similar qualities to how high-performing teams act in the corporate environment. And I think, you know, as I started to make those connections uh, in my first, you know, 30, 60, 90, 120 days, and then, um, you know, moving forward into one and two years as a scrum master, mm-hmm. I started to really pick up on, you know, some of those subtle cues and those those subtle connections. And that really molded um, how I work with teams and people, which kind of brings us, brings us here today, so. What are some things uh, that you do did to become a good scrum master? Like, how did you bring those attributes to sports Kind of help us see uh, see that picture. Yeah, I think any high performing sports team has one good quality of communication. Mm-hmm. And when you step into the corporate environment, you figure out pretty quickly that there are a lot of different types of communication. Mm-hmm. So uh, teams that I've worked with have been all over the spectrum from you know really quiet, very introverted to very opinionated and outspoken. Uh, and I think depending on the dynamic of the team when I step in is how it how I decide really what's the best way to work with them up front. I would prefer to have a team that over communicates versus under communicates because it's easier in my experience to mold a team that's already at least communicating whether it's maybe a little bit dysfunctional communication versus trying to get a team to communicate that wouldn't normally do that. What does uh, preparation look like for you? Yeah, I think first it's making sure that we have uh, user stories that are actually ready to be worked. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've stepped into some roles where we, we don't have um, incredibly strong product owners. Mm-hmm. And to kind of counteract that, I've had to partner the development team up with the product owners and do what we call the pre-grooming backlog session on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the actual grooming and planning session with the team on Mondays. And and that would that served a couple of purposes. One, it, it made the user stories more clear. We were able to do more of a pre-grooming with them to start to split the user stories, change the, the language in the user stories if we needed to. And then when we came into the actual planning session to start the sprint, that ceremony was much more efficient because the team had a better understanding and could comprehend the story and the work more effectively than if we just brought them in, you know, off of a raw rough draft. So let's talk a little bit about on your week to week, right? So the planning is done, team members have said, okay, we feel pretty good about these stories. You know, they've defined the sprint goal. 
and you know the sprint starts and there are different kinds of impediments that comes in when when you decide to produce a working software in that sprint right so what do those impediment look like and how do you go about uh, removing them or helping the teams to move them what's your mindset around impediments and your role as a scrum master i think a little bit of it first is analyzing the actual impediment you know normally in my experience impediments have um, have been rooted in some breakdown of communication or performance issue the previous week or the previous sprint you know i've had a lot of experience my teams have worked with apis and apis yeah. can be complicated because you're pulling information from a different source the team that prepares the api can can serve as that intermediary and if something changes anywhere within the process mm-hmm. it can break the team that's actually integrating the api into the ui so as a scrum master i need to recognize where is the impediment breakdown and then open up channels of communication to make sure that we're not using that as a consistent bottleneck you know if it's a, a situation where somebody didn't confirm with someone else a change they were making and then it broke code you know later in the process how can we bring those two developers together and and make sure that they're communicating about the changes that are happening and then the team that's actually consuming it are they prepared for it and do they have the ability to to do something in preparation so that they're not you know wasting time on the back end trying to fix something that could have been avoided by just changing code or having some collaboration on the front end let's go talk about you know team building uh, building a high performing teams and building relationships so what have you learned about building relationships with the team as a as a leader or a scrum master i think i've come at it from two different directions number 1 i have to understand and make a very intentional effort to get to know the person as an individual and then how the team communicates as a whole mm-hmm. and what the team dynamic is like and and i think part of getting to know the individual is understanding really what makes them tick what motivates them what do they like what do they don't like so i spent a lot of time up front building those relationships I don't think that your teammates care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I spent so much time caring about them and getting to know them and not talking about work and asking difficult questions and showing compassion and empathy on the front end mm-hmm. that now um when I need them to do something I've already built that trust and relationship so my influence is much greater on the back end versus just coming in and trying to make changes overnight. curious how have you showed up in the team uh, because of the pandemic that remote suddenly remote teams what have you what are some things that you've done to build a better team morale uh, or a better connection what are some things that you've done to create a high performing team in a remote fully remote distributed environment i think part of it is just coordinating conversations because it can be really tempting when you're remote to just send an instant message versus getting on a call. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm hearing about a conflict or if I'm hearing about an impediment or a misunderstanding, I always encourage my team to get on a call and work it out via a screen share or a face-to-face conversation versus going back in a chat for a half hour. So how does your role of a scrum master for your team but working with your art as a release train what does that look like for you Yeah I think again so much in agile comes down to communication so if if we're dependent on another team to deliver something that that we need in a in a sprint 
making sure that it's very clear what the quality of that is going to be. Is it going to be delivered on time? If it's not going to mm -hmm. be delivered on that on time, how does it affect our plan? What can we adjust? Can we set up a meeting in the current sprint to you know look over something for the following sprint to make sure that we're prepared for it? Bringing up issues on the Scrum of Scrums meetings to problem solve, staying in really close contact with the other Scrum masters on you know a weekly basis to understand what's happening on those teams, and then I think overall just making sure that our dependencies are are very clear and that we have a really good hold on what's expected because I've always heard that dependencies kill agility. What does that preparation look like? And what are, how do you participate in the whole PI event um, as a scale Agile Scrum Master? And what, what has you, been your experience from the PI? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned has been to prepare for the PI as best you can before the PI planning event actually happens. Holding the product owners and the product managers somewhat accountable to making sure that they have stories written for the features. Are there open questions on the stories and features that we need to communicate about? Does the team understand what is being asked of them? And again, my personal experience is that the more successful your your preparation for the PI planning is, the more the smoother that your PI planning is actually going to go. Yeah, let's kind of talk about what are some challenges that you faced, you know, being in remote teams and also while you're doing maybe PI planning or working in that cadence, um, any challenges that you face? I think remote is always going to be a little bit of a struggle, especially mm -hmm. when you're trying to coordinate, you know, an event with several hundred people. Yeah. But preparation, I think it kind of comes back to preparation, making sure that logistically, you know, where people are going to be allowing your team the space to ask questions, prepping the team for where they need to be, when they need to be there, what the context of the role is. And then again, communication, if there's an issue, knowing who you have to go to to get it fixed, not procrastinating on bringing in the proper person if you need them to help with something, if you're dependent on architecture or, or another team, just being really proactive about the fact that you need to over-communicate, not under-communicate when you're in an event that's so massive. How have you maybe created transparency with your team? Like, what are some things that you've done to create transparency? Yeah, I, I think number one is I have to be the ultimate example of being transparent. And part of this, I think, is is about not necessarily playing the bureaucratic political game in organizations. My personality and like my style with my teams is not to be this stubborn optimist. Yeah. <laughs> like, if something is going wrong and it's on fire, like. I'll empathize with that and I'll say, yeah, it's on fire. Like, this is not a good situation to be in. Like, right. I'm not the type to sit back and be like, oh, it's fine. We'll be fine. Everything's fine. No, it's like, and the team sees that. Mm -hmm. And this, the team will read that on me. So my ability to be honest and say, yeah, this is not a good situation. It sucks. We're going to get through it. But like, let's embrace it and like be okay. And just, I, I like to level with them and be pretty honest yeah. about it. And being transparent about like my fears and my weaknesses too is, mm -hmm. is kind of part of that because... If I'm not transparent with them about what I'm thinking and like my weaknesses, uh, apologizing is a big part of this and, and owning up to a mistake is like, yeah. it shows a lot of humility, but then over time it sets the example for my team. And what's really cool now is that I'm seeing them do that for themselves.
you have any other things that maybe you've done to build up and empower your team members? Yeah, I think number one, I don't come from a development or like a technical background. So again, whether it's a blessing or a curse, I don't know. But I've found that my teams as a whole are stronger than some of my peers because I don't have the ability to give them technical guidance. Yeah. I've studied again part the, the nice part about personal growth and self-development is that you have the ability to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. So the questions that I ask get them to think and I believe that thinking is probably the hardest work that there is, which is so why so few people engage in it. <laughs> so my my like just straight up humble inability to not give guidance on technical problems has allowed my teams the space and the ability to be more self-organizing and come up with solutions on their own because I'm not leading them there. next thing I wanted to kind of pivot into maybe some of the advices for like you know other scrum masters out there in a way no matter what team where you go what organization you go into there's you're always going to have one or two challenging team members I mean every scrum master that I've talked to you know come to me and say there's just one person like you know that's kind of making my job a little bit harder uh and which is you know, normal, like there are, there's going to be resistance. There's, you know, people that don't want to change and things like that. So have you had a difficult team member? And if so, like, how have you handled things when there is a difficult team member? Yeah, there's a lot of nuances within that. I think the reality is I know that I can't mentor everyone equally. Right. And what I've found is that influence between members of a team is gonna be greater than my influence coming from like a management or a leadership perspective. So even though I might not be able to mentor someone directly for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're very talented and they don't value my opinion. Maybe they have too big of an ego. Maybe they're just not willing to be vulnerable. Whatever the reason is, I, I truly believe that I can't physically and mentally mentor every single person because they just won't allow me the space to do that. Yeah. But if you, find the most mentorable people on a team and mentor them. Teach them how to communicate. Teach them how to collaborate and give them the tools. I found that sometimes they'll have a a greater level of influence with their peers versus me coming one-on-one. Any other tips or any other like key points that you want to share um, as far as like being an effective facilitator. Any other things that you got under your belt? Yeah, yeah. I think the the art of communication isn't just saying the right thing at the right time, mm-hmm. but it's also about not saying the wrong thing in a tempting moment. And as a facilitator, and as a especially as a scrum master and, and an agile coach, learning the art of when to speak and when not to speak isn't mm-hmm. an overnight process. Right. And and I think some of the breakthrough moments that I've had as a facilitator have been within those like five to 10 seconds of awkward silence. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, you know, like if you've been, you know, in those roles and, and I know you've, you've shared with me in, on this stuff in the past, it's like those five to 10 seconds are painful. They're mm-hmm. super painful. Nobody likes awkward silence, but it's super ironic that yeah. after those 10 seconds, someone speaks up. Yeah. And then normally it's something that actually does add a lot of value. Mm -hmm. So I think a new facilitator will probably feel the need to jump in and facilitate, but an experienced facilitator will be able to read that and say, I'm going to hold back and and then see what happens. (laughs) 
what advice would you have for someone who is maybe a new scrum master and going into their first scrum master role maybe just kind of looking back at even like your recent role or you know previous roles like here's kind of what i did the first 60 days 90 days or first month that helped me become a good scrum master yeah i think it's the motto i, I might have mentioned this earlier but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care so be patient you know don't be afraid to take a step back and really understand where the team is at and what they need you know my on my mind pretty consistently that i, I try to reflect on is well what does the team need from me right now yeah <laughs> what is the biggest thing holding them back maybe they have super strong product owners and and there's there's good communication between you know the product owners and the dev team but maybe there's a breakdown of a dependency two teams over maybe we can talk about just a little bit more on like what do you feel like are some of your strengths and weaknesses as a scrum master yeah, I think the the ultimate strength, the, the superpower, so to speak, is just building an incredibly strong relationship with each member of the team. Some of my teams have shared, you know, some pretty even traumatic events like in their past that they wouldn't tell anybody. And I think that knowing that they're willing to be that vulnerable with me is a, a really huge compliment. But then when they open up, it's the reaction that is is pretty powerful too because I have to like be empathetic and sympathetic and intentionally think about what I say back. You've built a relationship, but also you've created that space. You know how to hold space for people and they can trust you and they can come to you for whatever situations there might be, seems like. Yeah, yeah and there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, I, I ask my team, like, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think is the best option? I mean, yeah. and I think that's subtle, right? And then if they come to me with an idea, instead of trying to negotiate them out of it, even if it's maybe like not what my preference would be, just having the trust to say, I believe in you, try it. Like, yeah. I believe in your judgment. I trust your judgment. Like, go for it and see what happens. And I know earlier you talked about like you've had some very successful retros, maybe like lots couple where, you know, you don't even do anything at this point or you're just more of an observer and people just have your team just kind of runs a show on their own. I guess like what are some things that you did to get to that level maybe or what have you done to really make sure retros are fun, engaging and effective because you can have a retrospective and you can have, you know, you can talk about a few things, but like I've also like have had teams that just talks about things, but then there's really not anything concrete that they can take back and like implement to get better, right? Because there's also like an art on facilitating and, and making it effective that they do take out the action item and they know what they need to improve on and actually implement that. So like maybe just talk about what, what have you done? Yeah, I think retrospectives are such a journey. And I think maybe one thing that I've done that's worked fairly well is just understanding what the pulse of the team is like in the moment, right? I mean, is a, is, is a traditional retro even the right decision? Right. Are they even in the frame of mind to like go through a retro? And maybe they're not, and that's okay. Like I've done, I've done a lot of different types of retros that weren't even retros. <laughs> you know, yeah. like if they've just had an amazing sprint and they've delivered and they feel good about it and you know, they set a new record for velocity or they had some breakthrough as a team. Well, I don't necessarily want to go into a retro and talk about all the things that they need to improve. Mm -hmm.
lot of times people just like look at it like a lot of scrum masters I've seen just maybe look at it as like another meeting and you know depending on where your team is at it's really not just another meeting it, I believe like if you're conducting a an hour retro like you should spend probably like two hours prepping for that and a lot of times if if you're not doing that then it's like the same retro over and over again it's like what went well what didn't go well like how can we be better right it's the same format over and over again because i mean i remember like just spending a couple of hours just hey like what can i do like does my team like do they need a, a little bit more of an energizer like are they at a point where they are maybe not you know maybe more they're not collaborating as much or i don't see that team spirit so do we need to do like a team building activity should we just like go out like obviously when it was in person should we go out and get some coffee and just sit at a coffee table and like just chat right so i think the idea behind it is like can you spend some time can you become creative can you implement something new can you experiment you know, can you try something, some of the stuff that you, you talked about, right? Like really feeling the pulse. Like if a team is doing great and like they delivered well and the spring went great, like, yeah, no need to sit there and talk about like, what can they do better? <laughs> like go and celebrate, like have lunch or like have a, whatever, um, have some drinks. I don't know what, whatever they need. So, um, I think that's, um, that's great. Yeah. And that's not to say that you can't do a retrospective on the retrospective. Right. I've heard I've heard some people in the past do that. Um, and it's cool to see like how when you actually do a retro on the retro, what what feedback comes to how to improve it. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap with this episode. Thank you for listening till the end. We hope these podcasts are providing value on your Agile journey. If you haven't visited our website, theagilecoach.com, we highly suggest you for other courses and supporting material on your journey. You can also get access to our self-paced courses or learn more about the life training that we provide to become a Scrum Master, Product Owner, Product Manager. With that, we will see you on the next episode. Love and best wishes from the Agile Coach.